0: Well, good morning. Welcome to our breakout session on Ezekiel 16. If you would be so kind as to turn your packets to cha- uh, chapter, it's early, isn't it? Pages 38 and 39. That'll, that'll provide the, the text and an outline for our time together this morning in God's Word. I appreciate you all being here. I don't know what you've heard about Ezekiel 16, I know it's a treat for me every time I go through it. It's an amazing, amazing passage that's not really hidden, but just embedded in an Old Testament prophet that most of us have never read and may not be inclined to ever pick up for our quiet time in the morning. But the picture that it, that it gives us of sin and, and redemption, I think, is probably one of the most beautiful and gripping in all the scriptures. So I'm really very pleased that you're here this morning. I get to share it with you. Let, let me preface our time by talking about a dilemma that we all face that's, Probably going to provide the framework for our time in Ezekiel 16. So the dilemma. And then I just want to make a quick disclaimer, and then we'll get into the passage. So here's the dilemma. The dilemma starts with a beautiful truth. The beautiful truth is this: the relentless grace of God in Jesus Christ does two things for the Christians. And most of you know this. First, it gives us forgiveness from the guilt of sin. And the second thing is it gives us freedom from the shame of sin. So those two things are always at work. So first, there's forgiveness from the guilt of sin. And Paul wrote this in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the guilt of sin, the legal objective guilt of sin. But then there are another other passages that talk about not only that we're forgiven from the guilt of sin, but that we're freed from the shame of sin. Isaiah chapter 1 says this, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. So that's talking more about the subjective experience of sin. So we're freed objectively, legally, from guilt, but we're also freed internally and subjectively from shame. But here's the dilemma that we all face. Most of us find it much easier to embrace freedom from the guilt of sin than we ever do to feel freed from the shame of sin. Which is why in most gospel presentations, I don't know if you do this in your fellowships, we'll often use the courtroom image, you know, you were guilty and Christ stood in your place and the sentence was handed down. That's all about guilt, and that's wonderful, and that's true. Most of us, that's a lot easier to embrace than the second part of the gospel, which is being freed from the shame of sin, that subjective inner feeling, which is why most Christians, I shouldn't say most, many Christians, maybe you will say, I know that I'm innocent, but why do I feel so guilty? Has that ever happened to you? A lot of Christians will say, "I, I just don't feel forgiven. Like, I know God has forgiven me, but if he has forgiven me, why do I still feel so bad? And for many Christians, their wrestling in the Christian life is actually not with guilt, it's with shame. Now what's amazing is this, this particular passage, although it touches a little bit on guilt, primarily points its finger right at shame, and that's why it pops in the scripture as an amazing, refreshing depiction of the gospel that honestly all of us need, but most of us have not thought very long about. So th- th- there's, there, there's sort of the, the, uh, the, the dilemma we face. We know we're guilty, but we feel shame for our sin. Ezekiel 16 is going to land right on that. So that, that's, the, that's the dilemma. Here's the disclaimer. Now this passage from Ezekiel is, I think, one of the most gripping passages in the Bible that describes God's relationship with his people. In fact, you're going to see as we start to read through it, it deals with topics like adultery, abandonment, shame on levels that we are actually shocked that the Bible would use those kind of words. And yet at the same time, it paints a picture of redemption and healing that honestly is almost too good to be true. So my disclaimer is this, you'll notice straight off, women in this passage are portrayed as property, as, as helpless, as guilty, as oppressed, and the man in this passage is viewed as the Savior. So I want to talk about the elephant in the room. The Bible, a biblical worldview, does not view women as property, it doesn't view them as any more guilty than a man or any more helpless in the sight of God than a man. So please, if you're here this morning and you're just pushed back by this, well, the woman is the weakling and she's the villainous and the guy is the savior, don't get caught up in that because I know maybe for some of you in your life, you were the victim and the guy was the victimizer. But understand that what Ezekiel is doing is he's just painting a big picture of reality in that, honestly, we are all the women in this passage. And God is the only man who can emerge as a true savior. So if you're you're tempted to get caught up in the image, try not to do that. Ezekiel is doing it to push a point home and you'll see it come together at the end. Now, Ezekiel 16 was, of course, written by Ezekiel at a time when God's people were in exile in Babylon. They had been warned for century after century after century by prophet after prophet after prophet, repent, go back to the Lord, and they didn't do it. So what God did is he he destroyed their city and he carted them off into slavery, into captivity, and that's where they are. They're living as ashamed, captive people who have forsaken the living God. And Ezekiel writes this story to expose them and then to heal them. And if you notice on your outline, I think actually this is a three-act play that he's talking about. So the first act, which we'll read in a minute, is God, the passionate lover. We'll look at verses 3 to 14. And then act 2 is God, the wounded lover. And That's really the longest section of it. And then act 3 of this play is God, the faithful lover. And that's where, friends, mm, this thing comes together in beauty. This thing really does. I'm glad you're here. Let me pray. God, we're very, very grateful uh, that you have offered us forgiveness from our sins, as well as freedom from our shame. But Father, we acknowledge that really in, in our sin, we often nod to guilt, but dwell in shame so often. And thank you that a passage like Ezekiel 16 just exposes our tendency, exposes our patterns, but doesn't leave us wallowing in it but it provides hope and redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, bless our time together this morning as we look at this part of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, act one of this play is God the Passionate Lover. Let me read. It's right there on verse 38. Uh, I did it again. Page 38. Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born." And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall, and you arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth. I shod you with fine leather. I I wrapped you in fine linen. I covered you with silk. And I adorn you with ornaments, and I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful, and you advanced to royalty." And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What a great start to this story, huh? Now, I want you to notice a few things. I'm sure you picked up on it. The very first image that we see here in verses 4 to 5 is shocking. It's a newborn baby girl who has been thrown on the day of her birth out into the field, completely naked, to die of exposure. Now, sadly, that was not uncommon in the ancient world and sadly in some places in our world today. Girls were not profitable to have. You know, years ago, archaeologists found a a part of a manuscript of a businessman from Alexandria in Egypt who was away from his family while his wife was pregnant. And this is what he wrote. Remember, if it's a girl, throw it out. Throw it out. Now look at verse 5. It says this. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. You were, you were cast out in the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. But friends, he, here's the drama of this passage and it all starts to wind in in verse 6. God, who's pictured as this man, comes into this field and he has a very different reaction. Did you see that in verse 6? Says there in verse 6, "And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live, and I made you flourish." like a plant of the field. Now, now notice, God not only commands this girl to live, but he begins to support her and to provide for her. That's all those details that come after verse 6 and into 7, 8, and 9. And what's amazing is this, at the very beginning of this text, we see an amazing act of grace. Because this man who's imaging God, he's not only rescuing an unwanted baby, but remember the context, it's an unwanted baby girl. And in earthly terms, he will never make a profit from his actions. She she has no family, no dowry, nothing to offer. So just God taking this baby is amazing. And you know what? In any other story like this, or really any Disney movie that starts to pick this kind of stuff up, this is what would have happened. This girl would have been brought up on the man's estate. She would have been working in the kitchen somewhere, and every day she'd be reminded how lucky she is. Remember, the master had pity on you. You are lucky. You better serve the master well. That's how our movies would have gone. That's because our movies don't understand the gospel. Look at what happens in verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. Here it is. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine got what happened right he married her he, he married her it, this is amazing you know if, if you're interested in, in writing something down some of the other old testament prophets flesh this out Hosea in Hosea chapter 2 listen to what God says to his people listen to this I will allure you I will bring you tenderly into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to you. On that day, declares the Lord God, listen, you will call me my husband. I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice and mercy and compassion. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness and you will know, you will know the Lord. Friends, do you see what's happening here? God is saving. He's rescuing a person by grace, and then he's coming to them. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, "Uh, I want you to be my remote inferior. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you to be my partner. He doesn't say, "Uh, I I want your dutiful service. He doesn't say that here. He says, I want your intimate love. He doesn't say, okay, I want you to be my maid. He says, I want you to be my bride. This is God talking to his people. What an amazing picture of God. mean, friends, I remember almost 29 years ago on my knees proposing to Shannon, asking her to be my wife. I tell you, you know what Ezekiel has the audacity to say in this passage That the God of the universe is on his knees before us saying, will you be mine forever? That's what he says. Will you be mine? You know, there are a lot of images that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God. All of them are right and true. So if you're familiar with the Bible, there's certainly the image of a king with his subjects. There's certainly an image of a shepherd with his sheep. There's even the image of a father with his child. All of them are good. They're right and true. But do you understand how Ezekiel here is blowing every other category to pieces by saying, I want you to be my spouse. As a husband relates to his wife, that's how I want to relate to you as my people. You see why I love this passage. Look at that quote at the top of your outline from Isaiah 62. Look at what it says. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, look at that one verse very closely with me. Look at what it says, and look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say as a husband rejoices over a wife. It says as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride. Think about a marriage relationship. Think about the wedding day all the way through to death do us part. You know what God does here in this Isaiah passage? He picks the point In the marriage relationship where the feelings are most intense, where the passions are most inflamed, bridegroom and bride, wedding day, that's the image that he uses to describe how he thinks about you and me. I tell you, friends, no other religion even speaks of God as a friend, (laughs) much less a lover. We all know that friends share their, their hearts with one another, but here's the difference in marriage. Lovers give their hearts to one another. And God uses that image to describe his relationship to us. Again, you know, 29 years ago, I, I, I was shocked <laughs> when Shadon said, yes, till death do us part. Here is God committing himself to us, not until death do us part, but for all eternity. Well, friends, what does this mean? What does this say about the type of relationship that God wants with us and for us? Right on your outline, I have three things. Feel free to fill it in. First thing is this. God is calling us into an exclusive relationship. An exclusive relationship. You know, parents can have many kids. By God's grace, you have four. You can have a lot of friends, but... You can only have one spouse. And I think, expanding on this image, God is saying that we must love him as the supreme love of our lives. More than we love our earthly family, more than friends, more than career, more than reputation, more than success, more than boyfriend, more than girlfriend. We've got to love God as the most important. You know, growing up, uh, when our kids were younger, when I got home from campus, After a busy day at home, and I had a busy day, a couple of our kids would often say, so, Dad, who do you love more, Mom or us? Hmm, how would you answer that one? And I would just sit with them on the couch. I'm like, kids, I love you so much, but I love Mom more than you, and I love Jesus More than mom. And I tell you, the look on our faces, the kids, wasn't like, oh, that's not fair. There was a rest to their souls because it all works out well when our loves are aligned the right way. The same with God. God is calling us into an exclusive relationship. Here's the second thing. God is calling us into a comprehensive relationship relationship, a comprehensive relationship. Well, I learned something pretty quickly right after I got married. You might want to write this down. This is a bit of wisdom being passed on through the ages. Here we go. Ready? This is what I learned when I got married. Ready with your pens? Okay. You're not single anymore. <laughs> you got that? You're not single anymore. I was a slow learner. I was a slow learner. I didn't get married till I was 31, and so there were a lot of, there were a lot of embedded single patterns there that I had to get rid of. And see, that connects with our relationship with God. Because when God calls you and I into a relationship with him, it means that there's no area anymore that's off limits to him or hidden from him. No area of our life that doesn't involve our relationship with him. See, this ring tells me that I'm married to Shannon. There are, there are no days off. I don't put my ring in my pocket every once in a while and pretend it never happened. In fact, after 29 years, I actually can't get it past my knuckle anymore. And I'm very grateful for that because it's till death do us part. Friends, the same in our relationship with God. Everything revolves around him. It doesn't mean that we only do spiritual things so that we always have to wear a Christian t-shirt. It doesn't mean that. But it means that our relationship with God, now that we're united to him, influences and affects everything that we do. So even this morning, I can't really see you all, but when went through the back of my mind is, I wonder if Shannon's here this morning? Oh, no, it's okay if she's not, but that's the nature of the relationship. It's, it's always in the mind. So it's a comprehensive relationship. It's an exclusive one, I said that earlier. But the third thing is that God is calling us into a delightful relationship. A delightful relationship. (laughs) Maybe you figured this out. I'm not sure, but here it is. One of the blessings and the joys of marriage is that your spouse finds you delightful. Even if nobody else does. This is what I mean. You know, over the years, we have gotten to know hundreds and hundreds of students. And there have occasionally come moments when I'm tempted to think, who's going to marry that one? (laughs) Now, I'm pretty sure a whole lot of people said that about me, okay? But you know what's amazing? Somebody marries them. (laughs) And Shannon married me. And friends, it's not because they lost a bet. (laughs) (laughs) It's not because they had to, but because by the grace and the work of God, they want to spend their lives with that person. Friends, this is profound if you start to think of it in terms of your relationship with God. What our passage is pressing us to is this when God sees you, he utterly delights in you. He may be, at least in your mind, the only one who does. But please know he does. He just doesn't look at you and he doesn't say, oh, okay, they'll do. You know, I got, I got to give relentless grace to somebody today and I haven't filled my quota. All right. He utterly delights in you. remember for a number of years when I was on campus, we, we did a freshman discipleship group. And we would read through the Gospel of Romans. And at one point, I had had everyone fill out just a little bit of a very short survey One of the questions was this. When God thinks about you every day, what practically is his reaction? Now, I don't mean like what theologically. You know, we all know the right answer. But when God thinks about you each day, what practically is his reaction? Over the years, the answers rarely varied from the top one and two. The top one was always the God. Is disappointed. Just disappointed. The second is that he was amused. <laughs> the right answer is that he is utterly, utterly pleased. Head over heels. Not only wanting you for the moment for dutiful service, but for eternity for infinite love. God is our passionate lover. Friends, he didn't have to do it. You see that in the passage. He did it willingly. He did it voluntarily. He longs to be your lover. Well, I wish we could stop there. But we've got to move on to act two. And act two is really a hard act. In fact, it starts with that often ominous word, but. Let me read to you Act 2 of Ezekiel 16, starting in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty, and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them you played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given to you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them you played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them, also my bread that I gave you. I, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, but you set them... You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declared the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters, which you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered by children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God, you built yourself a vaulted chamber, and you made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings so you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you, therefore you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers, And with all your abominable idols, because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I'll gather them against you from every side, and I'll uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They will strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall give payment no more so I will satisfy my wrath on you my jealousy shall depart from you I will be calm and will no more be angry sheesh bet you ain't gonna read that to your kids someday before bed huh you all know in Bible study, one of the things that you often do is you look for repeated words. <laughs> it ain't hard on this one. <laughs> Years ago, someone said, how would I summarize this talk to, like, my grandmother? I said, just tell your grandmother you were called a whore number of times, all right? <laughs> you know, what we see here in, in, in Act 2 of this three-act drama is simply this. Every gift that the bride received, whether it be jewelry or clothing or perfume, even her children, she then used to attract other lovers. And I don't know if you notice, there's so much in this passage, but she did it in increasingly bold and provocative ways. Look at, uh, look at verse 17. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. In other words, in her, in her brazenness, she wasn't content with sexual intimacy and prostitution with live men. She tried to do it with statues and and with images. Then look at verse 25. At the head of every street you built your lofty place and made your beauty an an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. Then remember that whole thing about not taking payment? This is how far this woman has, has sunk. In other words, most prostitutes or or let's say forced into it because of something pressing in their life and they want the money. Not this woman. The guys ain't paying her. She's just paying, she's paying them. And let me tell you, friends, this passage is unbelievably graphic in the Hebrew, the original language. Unbelievably graphic. Uh, It helps explain why historically Jewish men were not allowed to read the book of Ezekiel before they reached the age of 30. Because they couldn't handle some of the images here. And the bottom line thing that we see in, in these number of verses is that the picture that is described here is one of sexual addiction and it's graphic, it's disturbing, but what Ezekiel is doing is he's taking that image and he's using it to drive right to the heart of the very nature of sin. You see, it's very easy for us to have an an accurate, but I would say sort of, uh, what, bland or shallow understanding of sin. In fact, the church I go to, one of our doctrinal standards says this, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. True? True. True. Here's a popular one. Sin is missing the mark. Not me, but the mark, right? Obeying God. Now, is that true? Yes. But this passage takes those true definitions, I tell you, it lowers the boom on us. It gives us this disturbing, radical picture of the real nature and the real offense of sin. In fact, it teaches us two things right on your outline. Number one is this. Sin is trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus. It's trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus. Again, I hope you notice it in the passage. This woman, the bride, took all the good things that God had showered her with. Garments, oil, incense, family, even her beauty. And what she did is she took those gifts and she used them to attract other lovers. And friends, once you bend your mind around that, that's an amazing insight into sin. Did you notice how the images in this passage go back and forth between idolatry and adultery? It's like back and forth. Why? Because on a spiritual level, they are the same thing. Idolatry and adultery are the same thing. This is what I mean. Friends, on a heart level, every one of us in this room wants to be loved. We want to be cherished. We want to be understood. We want to be welcomed. We want to be accepted. And we want others to want us and we want others to need us. Bottom line, we all want to know that somehow we are special. But what we do in our sin and our rebellion is we look to things, often good things, to accomplish that for us. Maybe it's, it's grades or friends, or working out and having a good body. Maybe it's career, or sports, or or relationships. In other words, all of us in this room, we are tempted to take the good gifts that God has given us so that we can love him and honor him and find joy in him, and we use them to make ourselves feel great. And what Ezekiel is saying here is that on a heart level, Whatever you are looking to or using to do that for you, you are in bed with. There is an old movie a number of years ago. I didn't like the movie, but I like the title because it describes it. Fatal Attraction. That's what this is. And you and I all know That sexual desire or sexual passion is much more intense and obsessional than parent love or friend love. It's at a whole different level. And see, what Ezekiel does is he exposes something that we all want to keep hidden. And it's this that anything or anyone that you and I look to besides Christ to be our source of meaning or our joy or contentment, that is practically our God. And it doesn't matter how many songs we sing in worship or how many Bible verses we memorize. That really is our lover. I mean, friends, how many of us take our God-given intellect or our physical condition or our relational abilities or our drive or our determination and we make them all about us that's idolatry and adultery and and our emotions rise or fall depending on our performance and other people's reaction have you ever noticed in your christian life that it feels like a roller coaster Like you're up or you're down. You're up or you're down. Does that actually have to do with God's opinion of you? No. It has to do with whether or not your other lovers are blessing you or whether they're cursing you. That's what it all has to deal with. And so sin is trusting in anything or anyone other than Jesus. What's so bad about that? It's your next point. Sin is not only breaking God's rules. It's breaking God's heart. It's not only breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. And friends, this is huge and it drives home the implications of that first point, God the passionate lover. Now we all know this, that the depth to which someone can hurt us is directly related to the depth of our relationship with them. You understand that, right? So some of you, I'm I'm sorry, I just haven't met yet, but if you come up after the talk and you're like, that was lousy, I'll be like, okay. Try next year, I don't know. Uh, if, If someone else who I know casually comes up and says, that wasn't a good talk, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, can you give me some thoughts? I'd love to make it better. If Shannon comes up and says, Well, that was lousy. That was hard sitting through that thing. Whole different level, right? Why? Because of the depth of the relationship. And remember our first part of this passage, God the passionate lover, God made it abundantly clear he's given his heart to us. No one has a depth of relationship to us that in anywhere comes close to God's relationship with us. And that's why, although it's disturbing, I, I appreciate, to force home the point, this image of adultery going on here. It presses it home. Let me give you two examples. I'm going to push the envelope, not inappropriately, but I, I think in terms of the passage, and I think you'll start to understand what's going on. So guys, imagine that, that someday God enables you to marry the woman of your dreams. Like you're just like, wow, God is so good. And you, you, start, you start a life with this woman. You have kids, all that kind of stuff. Like, God is good, and life is good. And then one day, you decide to come home early from work to surprise your wife, and you bought flowers and everything, and you, you pull in the driveway, and there's a strange car in front of the house. And you go inside, and, and all the kids are just, just in front of the TV, watching the TV. you are like, hey, everyone, where's mom? She's like, oh, she told us not to go upstairs today. Well, why not? I, we're not allowed to ask. Oh. So you go upstairs, and as you're going up the stairs, the bedroom door is closed, and you're hearing noises behind the bedroom door. And you open the door, and there is your wife, making love to another man. And she sees you, and she sits up, she goes, what are you doing home? I I probably should have told you, this has been going on for a while. Like, I loved you for a while, but really, I like a kind of living they're providing for us. Could you get back to work? And on the way down, take care of the kids, okay? And shut the door on the way out. Like, guys, could you ever get over that? I'll switch the image. You know where I'm going? Ladies, you married the man of your dreams that God has brought into your life. You have now entrusted him with your life and your body. And you're supposed to be visiting your mom with the kids and everything. You decide to come early to make a special dinner for your husband. And you get home and his car's in the driveway and there's another car in the street. And you say, kids, just hang in the van just for a minute. I'll be right back. And you go upstairs. Same thing. I don't love you anymore. You know, after that first pregnancy, your body just sort of lost it a bit. And, yeah, I'm sorry, but... Could you just shut the door on the way out? You said you weren't going to be home till tomorrow. Guys, ladies, would you look at that and go, oops. Oops, missed the mark. Your heart would be unbelievably broken. If you can enter into that image at all, you will begin to scratch the surface over the reaction of God when we give ourselves to other things. yeah. example here, it's disturbing, it's gut-wrenching, but it only begins to picture the very deep hurt that God experiences, friends, when we sin. I remember a number of years ago counseling with a a young man who had had gotten married and his wife had committed uh, adultery and we've counseled the other side too, women or the men, but I was talking with this man and I still remember he was just so broken and what he did at the end is, can I just show you our wedding album? You know what the wedding album is, right? It's like the idyllic picture of the way life is going to be. And as he's paging through the wedding album, he's just weeping over a broken heart. He didn't just say, Oops. (laughs) Yeah, I guess she missed the mark a a few times. Friends, the the, the picture emerges from Ezekiel of God as a wounded lover. And, And until you understand that, I think you'll never know how deep your sin is. And you'll actually never know how great God's love toward you is as well. You know, let's face it, there are very few people that I give my heart to or that you give your heart to. Uh, uh, I give a lot of people my time, my money, well, it depends. (laughs) But my heart, I don't know, aren't we all pretty protective about our hearts? Especially if we know they're going to break it. Like again and again and again. And that's why what God does here is unthinkable. He gives his heart to us, and he knows that we're going to break it again and again and again. But he still keeps giving it. Relentless grace. (laughs) You you know know what's ironic about this passage, this picture of sin that we just looked at? Did you notice what the other lovers did to this woman? Look at verses 39 and 40 says, I will give you into their hands. They shall throw down your vaulted chamber, break down your lofty places. They'll strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels, leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you. They'll stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. I mean, all this stuff. In other words, these other lovers come, but they don't come to bless. They come to destroy. And you and I will never know what we are in bed with, spiritually speaking, until it turns on us. And I guarantee you, it turns on us. So how many of you have given yourselves to grades and grades feel great until you realize, I just got to study for the next test. I got to do it again. How many of us have given ourselves to friends, like given our hearts to friends, until we're forgotten or forsaken or snubbed, either willingly or unwillingly? How many of us are giving ourselves to partying until the first hangover and then you realize as I did in college, stink, they only actually like me because I'm drunk. How many of us us give ourselves to boyfriends or girlfriends until the affection ends and then we move on and what's the most common feeling after a breakup? It's not oops, it's betrayal. Like it's hurt. How many of ourselves give ourselves to sports until the injury happens? How many times do we give ourselves to Christian service even until we don't get the bounce anymore or people don't thank us enough or you think, well, why am I the only one who's setting up chairs all the time for DCF? Like, friends, we've all done it. We've all faced it. Our false gods betray us. They fail to deliver on their promises. But you know what we do? Instead of turning to the true lover of our souls, this is what we do. Oh, I need another boyfriend or I need to get another girlfriend, or I need to try another sport, or I need another group of friends, or I need to change my major, or I have to join a different team, or maybe a different season will help. Some of us go inward, some of us go outward, but it is hard for us to go upward. So is there any hope for people like us? I tell you, we can't end with with act two here, because look at how it ends at the end of verse 41 into 42. I will make you stop playing the whore. And you're like, oh my gosh. And you shall get payment no more. And then look at that, ne- that next phrase. I will satisfy my wrath on you. Aren't you so glad Ezekiel didn't end right there? Okay, we gotta move on to act three. Here we go. Act three. This is where it all turns. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. That you may remember and be confounded and never Open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Friends, there's this, uh, sorry, I, I love this passage. There's this unbelievable tension that I think propels. So much of the Bible. Uh, on the one hand, you have statements from the Lord, such as verse 42, where he says, I will satisfy my wrath on you. Or verse 38, it says, I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. Like, or even, even verse, verse 59, I will give you into their hands. You're like, oh, You're like, oh no. But then, on the other side... You, you, you have statements such as this. Look at verse 60. What does it say in verse 60? I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Really? Or how about statements like, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so at a certain point in Scripture, you stop, you go, okay, God, which is it? Are we going to be pummeled and destroyed in your anger, or are we going to be swept up into your arms of affection for all eternity? Which one is it? And the key to this passage and the insight into the gospel that Ezekiel gives is verses 62 and 63. Let me read it again. It says, I will establish my covenant with you. You will know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So, You think, how is this possible? How is act two true? But then in act three, it's like, the shame is gone. How is it possible? Okay, let me wrap this. Remember how this passage began. It began with a wedding. Do you remember that? It began with a wedding. Do you remember in the Gospels where Jesus was when he did his very first miracle? Remember where it was? Ah, it was at a wedding. No coincidences in the Bible. Let me read to you from John chapter two. You can write it down John chapter two verses one to five. It says this: On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, "said to him, They have no wine." Listen, Jesus said to her, "Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come." His mother said to the servants, uh, do whatever he tells you. Is that an odd reaction on the part of Jesus? It's very odd. In other words, um, Jesus, they run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You're like, bad day, Jesus. What's going on here? Okay, let me give you a little insight. In the Gospel of John, whenever it says my hour or his hour, it always means, it's code, it means the hour of his death. So let me read it again. Uh, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time to die has not yet come. Did that help? No, I didn't think so. Okay. Let me explain. Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. As I mentioned before, I didn't get married until I was 31. In those latter years, leading up to my own marriage, every time I was at a wedding, you knew what I was doing. I was thinking ahead to what my marriage or my wedding might look like someday. And here's Jesus. He's 30. And see, Jesus knew exactly what his marriage was going to look like. You see, he knew that in order to have his bride fall into his arms, which is us, that the wine for that wedding would have to be his blood. That's what he knew. See, he knew that there was a barrier of sin and rebellion, that stain of shame that had to be dealt with. And Jesus, the most perfect one, stepped forward to take the penalty. See, Jesus knew that in order to raise a cup of joy at his wedding feast, he first had to drink the cup of God's wrath and anger at us for our adultery and idolatry. And that's why I think when when Mary said, they need wine, I don't know if Jesus was thinking ahead to the cross, he must thought. It's not time yet, is it? I don't have to do that now, do I? Because it was so overwhelming to him. And see, three years later, he drank that cup. And the cross is where everything begins to fall into place, and it makes sense. Notice in Ezekiel, those other lovers come and they hack us to pieces. Jesus was the only one who was hacked to pieces for you. Other lovers, they, they, they strip us naked and they leave us bare. Jesus was stripped and naked. He was hanging there for you. Other, other lovers leave you and I ugly. But this lover, Jesus, he gave up his beauty and he gave it to us. And he on, took on himself all of our shame and our ugliness. Look at that quote at the bottom of your, uh, your sheet there. Jesus' cleanliness is a far more powerful contagion than any dirt we can bring to him. There's always more that's right in Jesus than there is what's wrong in us. More grace in him than offense in us. More forgiveness in him than sin in us. The very worst in us cannot compete with the best in Christ. We can't sully him. He can only purify us. However deep our mess goes, his holiness goes deeper. We'll never exhaust it. Jesus went through ultimate exclusion, not just from people, but also from His Father. He was made toxic so that we could be made fragrant. He was shut out so I could be beckoned in. This doesn't mean that I never feel unclean. There's the ongoing attack of the accuser. Satan's going to be Satan, but I have a place to look in my war against sin and shame. That's the gospel. Now friends, over the years, I have done a lot of weddings, and they are always a privilege and a joy. And there's one thing that I have noticed at every single wedding that I have done, and it's this, every bride looks gorgeous on her wedding day, every bride, without exception. And that's why, guys, realize this on your wedding day, no one cares about you right now, okay? They all, remember, we're up there, and as soon as the door opens, what does everyone do? Goodbye, groom. Hello, bride. They're all looking at her. She is the main event because she is now clothed in these beautiful white robes that just sparkle and shine. In a sense, friends, that's the wonder of the gospel, That if you're resting on Christ, you're you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ now, such that when God the Father sees you, all he sees is an absolute beauty that he gets to spend eternity with. See, the gospel says that we are worse than we could ever imagine, but because of Christ, we are more deeply loved than we could ever believe. And friends, your beauty and God's affection for you has been secured by Jesus Christ. Therefore, nothing can ever touch it. How do we respond to this? Well, I would just say this. Consider your sin in a whole new light. Look at those other lover gods in your life and just say, what am I giving myself to? Look at your idols in a whole new way, not just as as little fun little pastimes, but things that you're tempted to give your heart to that you're asking to do for you what only God can do for you, and then run to Jesus with renewed eagerness. If you don't know Jesus, if you're at the end of the week and you don't, come to the one who is stripped naked and bare for you, who wants to wipe away all of your guilt and all of your shame. If you do know Jesus, understand this. Because of sin, we're worse than we could ever imagine. But because of Christ, you are more desperately and deeply loved than you could ever believe, all the way through to eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that he has done for us. Father, we we weep and repent the ways that we have used all of your good gifts to attract other things. Father, help us to run to Jesus and to rejoice once again in the relentless grace of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.